Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. On this special episode of Bible Worm, we're reading the story of Herod and the Magi as told in Matthew 2, 1-23. This text tells a side of Christmas that we may not want to talk about, as it narrates the story of a fearful King Herod who kills all the babies of Bethlehem in his quest to destroy the baby Jesus, who he perceives as a threat to his political power. We talk about the arrival of the Magi from the East, who discern from the stars that the world is changing, and the religious authorities of Judea, who derive from the text where the child is to be born. We marvel at the power of dreams as a means of God communicating urgent messages that bypass rational thought and we wrestle with the ways that religious knowledge, and yes, even Christmas, can be co-opted by fearful people of power in service to death, asking how people of faith might instead be faithful witnesses to the power of the God of life who is coming into the world. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, it's good to see you. Hello, Bobby. Bobby! Yes. It's my birthday. I know. I was going to say normally on the Bible when we try to exist outside of space and time, but we can't be outside of space and time on your birthday. Happy birthday. No, we can't. Thank you. It's a very exciting birthday. Do you know what happens this year? Um, I do not know what happens this year. I move yet further along into the indignities of the body and get my first... Um, hopefully preventative uh, colonoscopy. This is the colonoscopy birthday. I feel like the birthdays get worse and worse as oh, you yeah. get older. This is colonoscopy birthday. Yeah. Yeah. I'll report <laughs> back on that later, but not in detail. Yeah. Or it no, could that, be a special episode. That's so exciting. Other than a colonoscopy, <laughs> do you have do you have plans for your birthday? You're not getting a colonoscopy on your birthday though, right? No, no. no yeah, that no. would be pretty intense. No, no. Mm-mm. Uh, I remember celebrating birthdays with you back in the back in the graduate school days. You made me a CD one time called on my thirty fifth birthday called Bobby for President. <laughs> I wonder what I put on that CD. Like, I, I still have it. Still yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it starts. I'm it was like a year late though, as I recall, because you really wanted to put Ace of Bases. I saw the sign on there, and for some reason, and and I, that, that era, took me a you year couldn't to find do. it. Yeah, that's pretty lame. It was but, a different you know, era. It was a surprise. It was before Spotify or whatever. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Um, yeah, I still have a, a delightful and strange birthday card you gave me when I was 28. Oh. 28, <laughs> oh, a wow. mere baby. Is, yeah. yeah. Was it a good birthday card? great. You didn't write much, but um, it has this statue of like a, a man looking like, like, I don't know, kind of like this very dramatic shrugging like a shrug of the shoulders. thing, kind of. And you stuck on this little sticker, like a little voice, like a speech bubble yeah. that said 28 question mark, meh. <laughs> <laughs> that was so, that 
That was so meaningful and explained to you how it much so you mean good. to me. It was so good. That was great. <laughs> well, I'm glad it's, it's still I've on saved the... it all this time. Yeah, it's like dusty, it's been like that was at least like it. five years ago, 28. Yeah. Yeah, right. Huh. So, Amy, today on the There's Bible another word, birthday we're going to talk about. There is. There Look is. at that connection. Yeah, yeah, there's another birthday. So we're Not still much. working a little bit through Matthew's version of the birth narrative. The timing is a little bit quirky. And so it's not exactly clear where we are relative to the birth of Jesus, but it's part of the general infancy story of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. This text is not in the narrative lectionary. And so we are inserting it as a special episode. But in my mind, this text is really kind of key to understanding what Matthew is up to in his gospel. It sets the stage for lots of things that are to come. Mm. So we've been jumping around a little bit in the narrative lectionary, but we're basically like what has just happened in the text is that the angel has showed up to Joseph and said, hey, you should marry. Mary, Marry your pregnant wife. Yeah. And so the baby has been born and has been named Joseph. That's what happened in the last verse of chapter one. The baby has not been named Joseph. Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. I just rewrote the whole story of Christianity (laughs) (laughs) with a slip of the tongue. You know, I vey. Am I allowed to say oive? I don't know if I'm allowed to say oive. Oh, yeah, you can. <laughs> yes, you can say oive. All right. So this week we're picking up in chapter 2, verse 1. It's not exactly clear where when this happens relative to what just happened, but oftentimes it is thought that this happens maybe two years after the birth of Jesus, but it happens sometime mm-hmm. while Jesus is still in his infancy. And so... It takes a little bit of time if you're a magus in Persia who sees a star in the sky. It takes a little while to get to Bethlehem. That's and true. So There's significant travel time. There's travel time involved. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 1, and I'm reading in the Common English Bible. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to honor him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. He gathered all the chief priests and the legal experts and asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote, You, Bethlehem, land of Judea, by no means are you the least among the rulers of Judah, because from you will come one who governs, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and found out from them the time when the star had first appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me, so that I too may go and honor him. When they heard the king, they went, and look, the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. Falling to their knees, they honored him. Then they opened their treasure chests and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. So I think I want to start just with the question of what are magi? The Mm -hmm. common English Bible has just transliterated the Greek magi. Sometimes you will read that as wise men. Mm-hmm. What is, you're reading the NRSV? NRSV says wise men, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
But then it has a little footnote that says, or astrologers. Astrologers, yeah. Which is, it was a little funny to me to think about, like, the way that I think of, like, the little, (laughs) you know, like, horoscope section that I used to read in the newspaper when I was growing up. Like, think about, thinking about them as, like, a source of wisdom. I don't know. What do you think about astrology, Bobby? Astrology in the modern sense or astrology in the ancient sense? in the modern sense. And then we can go back to the ancient sense. I mean, I'm a rationalist Presbyterian. (laughs) So I'm (laughs) a little distrustful of all things mystical. I don't know. Like I used to read my horoscope and I thought it was kind of interesting, but I've, I've not really bought into the, to the astrology. I don't have anything. I don't have anything against astrology. I just don't, I don't find it. It's not useful for me. Enlighten. It doesn't enlighten. How about you? I, I, yeah, I, I, it does. It doesn't do anything for me. I, I haven't found that it rings true uh, from from what that I've seen, so I don't pay too much attention to it. But your your first question was, I think, a really important question, like modern astrology or ancient astrology. What do you what can what do you know about ancient astrology other than that it uses the stars in some way? Yeah, I mean the. The reason that I asked the question that way is because I think some of the developments of like what sign are you in and is the is Mercury yeah. rising and yes. all of those things are developments of the general practice of watching the stars for significant events. Mm-hmm. These guys, I think, are doing that. I don't know, I don't know how far we can dig into what their exact practice was, but they yeah. seem to be people who consult the skies for important mm-hmm. signs about things that are happening in the world. And mm-hmm. so they're, you know, they're divining information from the heavens based on the movement of stars and planets. I, I think that is, I think that much is true. And so yeah. when they see this star that they have not seen before suddenly appear, then they think something, something really important is happening here. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. They're not, they're probably not reading their horoscope in the newspaper is all, is all yeah, I really Yeah, no, probably really not. And I think it's, you know, it's easy for me to forget as a modern person how sort of prominent and uh, and really awesome it would have been to to watch the skies, you know? Like everything is dark, so you can just see a whole lot more stars. Right. And there's also not really anything else to see at night because everything is dark. So I can certainly understand how your attention would be drawn to details in the movement of the stars that 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 most modern folk would never notice. That's absolutely right. And, you know, the stars were thought of as, it's like that's the heavenly realm up there. And so these are in some ways mm-hmm. reflective of what's happening in heaven. He didn't really have a concept that those were like, you know, planets and gas balls millions of miles away. Right. And right. so very much, like they're, you're exactly right, that darkness was much more, of an experience that people, especially when you live in a place like Atlanta or Little Rock, like darkness right. is hardly even a thing. But right. in the ancient world, it very much was. And the stars were very much present and they were understood quite mystically. And so mm-hmm. these guys, it's interesting that what they're doing is applying some kind of divinatory practice, which one could imagine the Bible being critical of. Mm-hmm. But here they actually have, like they've gotten really close by seeing yeah. the star rise, they make it to Jerusalem, which is, yeah. I mean, f- just a few miles from a few miles, Bethlehem. Yeah. And yeah. so there is there is truth being revealed 
in the divination practices of these astrologers, which to me is, yeah. is really interesting. Do you make anything of that? Well, let me add something to that that yeah. is a note in— So I, I read from the Jewish Annotated New Testament, and the one of the notes in, in here says that Jewish readers at that time may not have regarded them as wise, but as mm. foolish. Oh, interesting. So, so I don't know if it's so so if we think about it that way it could be an example of sort of you know people outside unexpected places for wisdom to emerge from which in some ways fits exactly into the Hebrew Bible story is like all the all these unexpected you know like power comes from unexpected places and so while I certainly I agree with you that the idea that divination can be, <laughs> you know, that that you can that you can use signs in nature for divination would be very troubling on the one hand, I think. I do think people might have been primed for unexpected sources of power in the world. I don't know. What do you think? No, I like that way of I like that way of saying it. I, at first I was like, what is that's a strange way to think about it. But that but actually I think that is exactly right and maybe not that different from what I mean. So here is God being truly revealed in ways that one would not necessarily expect. And you could imagine the biblical text being critical of, but mm-hmm. here that there is, there is legitimate revelation to those who are not the chosen people in ways that are not the approved ways. And yet right. the revelation seems to be genuine. And so here we have some unexpected people being able to access God's truth in a, in a new kind of way. It's, to me, it seems to herald mm-hmm. some kind of shift. You know, some of these texts we've been reading in Isaiah and elsewhere, where suddenly the nations are going to be able to see, like here yeah. we have the nations being able to mm-hmm. see. I think that's right. I think that's right. Do you have any comment about just the significance of stars at the birth of a person? I mean, I can I can see how it would be um <laughs> I can't think of a very good adjective. It's just awfully nice to think about the birth of a person being reflected in the heavenly realm yeah. in some way to mm-hmm. sort of see that 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 that's the first thing that pops into my head. Yeah, just that the heavens respond to the birth of this individual. Something like that? Is that what you mean? Yeah, that they respond or that— I said respond. You said reflect. Yeah, that somehow like what what's—yeah, that we, that we have some kind of like parallel existence mm, in the yeah, heavenly yeah, yeah. realm. I don't know. Yeah. This is no theology. This is Amy's theology. I'm just <laughs> making it up. Do you have a thought about it, Bobby? On the issue of the star, I was just thinking about like in the Greco-Roman world, this was— not common, but it was an unknown phenomenon that stars would rise uh, in the sky when an important person was born. So Alexander mm. the Great, for instance, had a star reported by Herodotus and others when his when he was born, a star appeared in the sky that heralded his birth. And so there is a sense in the Greco-Roman world that this does happen for like epic changing people. And so mm. it places the birth of this child on the on the sort of the the plane of people like Alexander the Great who revolutionized the the world. I can see why that made King Herod nervous. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. There is also, within the Jewish tradition, the star rising is 
sometimes a reference to a little prophecy in uh, the mouth of Balaam in Numbers 24, mm-hmm. where he says, a star comes from Jacob, a scepter rises from Israel. And that comes to be understood in some branches of Judaism anyway, as a messianic figure. Yeah. And so, so the star has significance if you're a Greco-Roman because important people get stars in the sky. And it has a, a similar but distinctive significance within a Jewish tradition that says the star rising uh, is, a, is a sign of the Messiah. So you have mm-hmm. people like Bar Kosaba who calls himself Bar Kokhba when, when he mm-hmm. claims to be the Messiah, the son of a star. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think these things may be I didn't related. know that's why he called himself son of a star. That's cool. Now son of a star is like your mom's Angelina Jolie or whatever. That's right. <laughs> that is not what Bar right. meant. Yeah. So you mentioned no wonder Herod is upset. And I just, I mean, Herod is such a powerful figure in this text all the way through. And then he kind of actually, I mean, he dies at the end. So I guess that's why he fades from the narrative. But mm. can you just talk a little bit about King Herod and why did you say, of course, he's upset just get us into the Herod space. So, a bit. Uh, okay, I am not an expert in King Herod or sort of what was going on at this period in in the Jewish world. My understanding of Herod is that I feel like we've had so many kings that I sort of uh, feel similar in my reading of them. That he he is Jewish, but maybe not like super pious, knowledgeable. Jewish. I just, he's insecure. Like he, you know, like he wants to hold on. It's the story of like every king in the biblical text. Like they're insecure and sort of desperate to hold on to power. And so as, as we see play out in this, he's, yeah, the idea that a Messiah is, has been born, that's, I mean, I guess I don't know if if he was imagining that the Messiah was going to be like a human king who was going to lead in human kingly ways, which yeah. I think was the general understanding at that time. Yeah, that that God's chosen king has been born. You have a problem, yeah. King Herod. Yeah. Herod is such a fascinating figure. He was actually Idumean. And so like from the region of Petra, kind of south, mm. like in the Negev. And so the Idumeans converted to Judaism. And so they were Jewish. They were like Jewish. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. And so there was some question among the Jewish people at the time about the legitimacy of Herod as a king of the Jews. Mm. And so he was always a little unstable in that role, even like more than other kings might Even more be. than other kings who were unstable in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He got in the good graces of the Romans. His father did. And then he came into power propped up by the Romans. And so his rule was very much like the Romans have my back more than it was I have won the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there was a tensive relationship. And Herod in his lifetime, was he was brutal. He murdered all kinds of family members who he thought might try to take the throne from him and people who were not family members. He He's remembered as, I mean, he was a great king. He built all kinds of beautiful things. He rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, but he was a brutal ruler. 
um, who was that like the way he's depicted in this text, although we have no historical record of any of this outside of Matthew, is very much in keeping with the kind of thing that Herod was known to do. Yeah. Another thing about Herod that I think is important is that King of the Jews was actually a title that he used for himself. And it started to be a title, I think in the reign of like Alexander Janaeus or someone like that, one of the Hasmonean um, rulers. And it made its way down through, uh, through King Herod. And so when the Magi show up and say to the King of the Jews, where is the King of the Jews? Oh yeah, that would sting. Yeah. Yeah. I think they stumbled into that one. Isn't that kind of how you read it? Like they don't realize they're like yeah, stirring up it doesn't stuff. look like they are. Yeah, it looks like they mean it sort of as an innocent question that yeah. then causes some panic for Herod. Yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. Now it's interesting that when he gets troubled, the first thing he does is gather the chief priests and the legal experts to ask where the Messiah was to be born. So he's. He's kind of on it. Like he knows, he sort of knows what's up. What do you make of the fact that he calls the religious leaders as his first move? I mean, I guess I read it, maybe this is a naive or like simplistic reading. I read it just as he doesn't, he doesn't know enough of the prophecy that has come before him to know where to look for Mm. the Messiah and he's looking for him. Although it's quite funny to me that he thinks you can just kill him and be done with it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. okay, fine, Herod. You give it a try. That's that's how I read it. But I, I am guessing from your question that you think there's more going on there. Well, no, I think that's important. So he knows enough to know that uh, that there is. But he better find. Yeah, he knows enough. To, mm-hmm, yeah. He does not know enough to know like how to use that knowledge to his own benefit. And so the religious yeah. leaders come into play. I think that's exactly right. And I think that it sh- it tells us something about Herod as a religious leader. I mean, sorry, as a political leader who knows enough of the religion to sort of get by, but doesn't know the religion deeply, sort of uses yeah. it for his own ends. As I say that, I imagine all sorts of political leaders, just in my own experience, who also know how to use religion toward their political ends, but are not actually that deeply engaged in the religion itself. Mm-hmm. I kind of read Herod that way. I go back yeah. and forth about whether to be critical or sympathetic with the chief priests and the legal experts. Like the king comes and asks them where the Christ is to be born and they tell him. And I can't decide, like, is that an innocent thing? or Are they trying to help him? find the Messiah? Are they? That's so interesting, Bobby. And I think it fits into a question that I had, which is I understand why Herod is frightened, but why all Jerusalem with Oh, yeah. How did, where did you go with that? I mean, I, again, like I, I don't know exactly what people imagined was going to happen at the time of the Messiah. I mean, certainly big changes that would eventually come to God's kingdom, you know, coming coming into fruition on earth and is a good thing, but means everything's going to be turned upside down. Yeah. And so I can see how people who are in power at that time might not want that to happen, even though, I mean, as you're saying, especially the the religious leaders, you would think that is exactly what they want to be at. Like that, that's, that should be all they're waiting for, you know? Yeah. But I guess that level of change is also frightening 
no, no matter what, like you, yeah. you have to, it's, you have to have some kind of faith to yeah. really be like, let's, let's turn the whole ship upside down. Exactly. No, I think that's a really important observation and the, the, that it's all Jerusalem and not all Judea yeah. seems important to me that yeah, it's the that's right. sphere of the ruler that is really troubled. And I think you capture it nicely that it's the issue like the power of the chief priests and the legal experts is tied up with the power of Herod. Mm-hmm. The chief priests are the ones who run the temple, and which is very much a connection point between Judea and Rome and sort of operates with Rome's tacit permission. And so their position is dependent on Herod's position and his relationship to Rome And so, yes, you want the Messiah to come, but also there's a lot at stake in it for you. So maybe you don't want the Messiah to come. Ah, God, I just can't even imagine the like cognitive dissonance that would be in my own, my own self, like my own spirit. If you sort of live your life proclaiming these words of prophecy and proclaiming this messianic hope. And then when push comes to shove, like you just can't. Yeah. That sounds really painful. I mean, I know, you know me. I'm not supposed to empathize with those people. But <laughs> no, like, I appreciate it. That, it's, that sounds so, it sounds awful. It does. Amy, this is one of the reasons that I think this text is so important to read, especially in the Christian community in North America, is because I think, by and large, people positioned like me, like this is more or less the same way we're positioned. We talk about the Messiah. We're looking forward to the Messiah. We talk about the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. But our power is tied up with the political and economic system. And so if the Messiah actually comes, or if people actually live as though the Messiah has already come, then there's going to be a cost of that. And And I see that. And so, you know, when we talk about Christmas, we're in a similar position about, and I think that uh, oftentimes this sort of political side of Christmas gets lost. It's there in Luke's gospel, but in a much subtler way. I think this text, and one of the reasons that I'm a little sad this isn't in the narrative lectionary is because I think it forces a conversation about, do we really want Christmas to come? <laughs> or are, right. are we more like these scribes and chief priests who... I mean, they want the Messiah to come, but also they know there's a cost. Right, but also, but also, yeah, it really, you have to be willing to give up everything. Yeah. So I appreciate your empathy for them because I feel like it is secondarily empathy for me. Because it's for us too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. right. Anything to, so uh, they know where the Messiah is to be born and they mm-hmm. give this quote, which is mostly Micah 5 too. Mm-hmm. The last line, who will shepherd my people Israel, is from 2 Samuel 5.2, which is a reference to David. Anything about that set of prophecies or scriptures that you think is worth? We just talked about that Micah text not too long ago. I mean, well, f- for, okay. The way that I read it in Micah they're not talking about the place, Bethlehem. Like, mm. they're talking about the tribe. Like, this is the, they're talking about, like, a clan. The translation in the Masoretic text is, like, least among the clans of Judah. From you, 
one shall come forth to rule Israel. So I don't know. I guess they were associated with a with a piece of property. So I don't know. So, so maybe that's not of great consequence. I don't remember what else we said about it when we talked about Micah. What I remember from that conversation and, you know, for listeners, it might be worth going back and looking at that episode if you're interested. It was um, episode 412. The thing that I remember about that conversation was this idea that Bethlehem is the city of David. And so we're going Mm -hmm. back to the city of David to find a new ruler. Mm -hmm. But we don't mention David. And so Mm. one of the things we talked about is are we trying to go back behind the Davidic monarchy and start over? Or are we trying to go back to the David before he was like King David and he was just David the shepherd? He was the shepherd, yeah. And so for me— they, that last line inserted there, who will shepherd my people Israel, kind of leads mm. to that second direction. Like he is in the mm-hmm. line of David and Matthew has been very clear about that yes. in chapter one, but he's shepherd David. He's in the line of shepherd David, not yeah. kingly apparatus David. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. And it does, it does echo really nicely with the idea of now going to see it baby who's been exactly. born, you know, totally outside of any any power structure or really any acceptable social circumstance in 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 Bethlehem. Yeah. Yeah. And we're definitely working with different ideas about what kings can be and do. And you can see the power of Herod already kind of mm. flexing here. Mm-hmm. And then you've got this alternative of a of a shepherd and now a baby and competing ideas about the nature of Kingdoms the nature, the nature of, of kings, kings and the nature of, of power and godliness and, yeah, what is awesome. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, Herod in his life was a fairly cunning and devious person, as oftentimes kings in, interested in protecting their own power can be. And so he tells the Magi that he wants to come and worship, but you know that that's not right. <laughs> what he's up to. Um, anything, I mean, I just, I love that depiction of Herod there is like, you know, know what I mean? Know what I mean? Nudge, nudge. Yeah. Um, right. I guess the Magi take him at his, at his word. They don't seem particularly suspicious at this point. At this point. No, they don't. You know, what stood out to me in this section is that here, then it says Herod secretly called for the wise men. Yeah. What do you make of that? So I, I don't know who he's trying to keep it a secret from like he's already called in all the the powerful yeah people unless that points back to the idea that they the those sort of religious leaders were were answering sort of naively without any understanding of what he was trying to do and we're just you know you asked a question and we're answering it yeah i don't know who else he would want to keep it a secret from that's a good point i mean the question that he asked them is also so he asked the scribes and the chief priest, where? And he asks yeah. the Magi, when? And so if you've got yeah. the where and the when, then now you can sort of narrow it down to like a baby of a certain age in a certain place is, is what we're yeah. looking for. Yeah, yeah. It does seem like he could just, now that he knows where, he could just go and see for himself. And so it's interesting, this sort of ruse. You know, one way of reading it is that he doesn't want the idea that the Messiah is been born out in the world amongst the people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if the king goes to Bethlehem right. or sends troops to Bethlehem, now they're going to wonder what's going on. But right. if the Magi are going there the anyway, yeah. 
And especially if you read it your way, uh, the way that you suggested in which the Magi, the, the astrologers are viewed as a little like weird or kooky. Nobody's mm-hmm. going to be like, oh, Magi. Mm-hmm. The Magi, by the way, are not kings. They become kings in the Christian tradition. Um, so the very famous song, hymn, We Three Kings of Orient are. They're not kings. They're some sort of mantic functionaries. Anyway. Yeah. It is also worth, I think, noticing that the Magi, the the natural appearance of the star in the sky gets them close, but it doesn't get them all the way to Bethlehem. Yeah. You have to have this combination in some way. So they get they make it to Jerusalem, the sort of place where you assume a king is going to be born. You know, this is making me think back to another story. I don't, forgive me, I don't remember which gospel it is, but like the, the birth story, like in the the real birth story. Which one is that? <laughs> Linus's birth story? That's Luke. Yeah, Luke. Too. Luke yeah. Okay. Where, where we noticed also that like it took a lot of people in a lot of different places to actually put yeah. together what was happening. Yeah. And here that's happening too, although sometimes in sinister ways, like Herod gets some information yeah. from one source and some information from another source, but the Magi also get some, you know. That's right. That's right. That it really is. Yeah, for better and for worse, people have got to talk to each other to be able to put together even the beginning, the very beginning of this puzzle. That's really, that's really important, Amy, and I had not seen that. Because in theory, Herod or the priest or somebody could have looked up in the sky and seen the star and put it all together for themselves, but they didn't because they weren't paying attention. Yeah. So it took the Magi from the East who were paying attention to such things but then they couldn't get all the way to Bethlehem because they didn't know the prophecy. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So then you've got this sort of interesting engagement between Gentile and Jew, both of mm-hmm. both of whom are necessary, which takes us back a little bit, I think, to the genealogy where those Gentile women show up in the mm-hmm. story of Israel and they're, they're both necessary. Yeah. This last part seems like the star now is not just sort of like generally hovering over Jerusalem, but is like, like it points, <laughs> like it stood over the place where the child was. It just sounds like it almost like lands on the roof of the house or something. Can I please read you the note in my Bible about that? Oh, please do. No ancient source confirms this astronomical phenomenon, and no star in the sense we know it today could stop over a house without incinerating the earth. <laughs> Is that literally what it says? It is literally <laughs> what it says. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Well, this is a special star. This was the special Jesus star. It wasn't going to incinerate the earth. That would make a terrible story. That would be a terrible, terrible story. That's a, that's <laughs> an awesome. I love when I love when the comment, commentators and study Bibles are a little witty, little a little yeah, little right. Snide. They leave you little uh, the little Easter eggs in there for the close reader. That yeah. Reference. Yeah. Right. So one way or another, the Magi make it to the house. Yes. And what they do when they get there is they fall on their knees to honor him. And then they give him these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Yeah. It's a really lovely, like the story's about to take a take a turn, but that's a kind of a lovely ending. Like they've made this long journey. Yeah. What do you what do you take from that? What they do when they get there? So Matthew hasn't really told us anything about what Mary knows. We know that Joseph knows this baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit and is going to save the people. Like th- th- this is a special, <laughs> a special baby. But to to have these total outsiders 
travel from so far away from outside of the tradition that is sort of naming this, you know, outside of their tradition entirely, outside of their world, to come and offer gold and frankincense and myrrh, like, I don't know, that just seems like it would be so far outside of the experience that they might expect right after the birth of a baby. And maybe not confirming of anything specific, but certainly marking this once again as something unusual is going on here. Something very special is happening, and it's not just in our head, and it's not even just in our community and something big is happening. Yeah. I think that's really important that the, as far as we know, these are the first people who have acknowledged the birth of this child and they are from very far away and confirming, and they are doing something very dramatic, like bowing Mm -hmm. down. Mm -hmm. And that word can be used of bowing down in worship and they're bringing these expensive gifts. And so like the confirmation is not just like, you know, Aunt Sally next door, like, hey, what a cute baby. <laughs> like, right, right. Magi from make the you East lasagna, who have you must be tired. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think that's right. I love how you you often emphasize the pieces that people have that come together to confirm the whole. And I think this is a really lovely instance of that. These Gentile astrologers from Persia confirm the story of these mm. fairly insignificant folks living in Bethlehem. Yeah. So the Magi are warned in a dream not to return to Herod, so they go back by a different route. Anything to say about that? Well, a dream, you know, dreams will come up a bunch more in this, and and I think the more they came up and the more central they were to the story, the more I realized, like, oh, this is, dreams are an important thing here. Right. But at this particular moment reading this, I've, it reminded me of, like, if you write a story and you don't know how to fix some <laughs> part of it, like, it doesn't yeah. make any sense, so then you're like, and then they woke up. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it just seems like, yeah. yeah, they didn't go back that way because they had a dream. Yeah. But as you all have already mentioned to us, I think that for Matthew and for many in the text we read in the Hebrew Bible earlier in that year— like dreams are a real way of getting information from from another realm, from right. God, from however you want to articulate that. Um, it's not just, it's not some kind of frou-frou thing. It's interesting to me too that here, I mean, presumably this dream is from God. And so God is not interacting directly with the Magi in the same way that God interacted with Joseph before and will interact with Joseph again later. And so these outsiders to their religion are also able to have this experience. I also think it's important because the Magi seem to have just seen the star in the sky of their own volition. So they were following their own practice on the way Mm -hmm. there, but then now God has entered in with them and said, okay, now I need you Gentile um, to do this. Like I need you to go away, (laughs) but um, they're like, God has interacted with them directly. And so they're sort of on the same team now or something. That's really interesting. Cause I was thinking as you were talking before that, it's interesting that there, I was like, well, did God give them the first sign of the star? I mean, who knows? But that that gets into sort of bigger cosmic, you know, that gets into much larger questions of how different, how this whole theology yeah. works. But but the point, I think, as you're saying, is that following their own tradition, they got to this point. Yeah. And then it it seems, 
You know, it's not the stars that tell them to go back. Yeah. That's exactly right. When The way you said that was just making me think of how you sometimes talk about Moses and the burning bush and that God sort of puts a mm. sign out there and sees who will pay attention. And I, I wonder mm-hmm. if you could read the Magi the same way. God puts a sign yeah. in the sky and sees who's paying attention to it. And it turns, so the sign yeah. is from God, but God didn't necessarily intend it for the Magi. They right. were just the ones who were paying attention to it. And so they're the yeah. ones who get this insight. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here. This month, Bible Worm has a special offer just for you. If you've ever thought about joining our Patreon, now is the time. For the month of January, we're giving all our subscribers access to the full range of Bibleworm features. If you join now at the Bibleworm supporter level, you can get early access to episodes, weekly worship liturgies, and video Bible studies, all for just $4 for the month. If you've ever wanted to try out our Patreon, now's the time. We hope you'll join us. And now, back to this week's episode. All right, let's continue on picking up in verse 13. When the Magi had departed, an angel from the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod will soon search for the child in order to kill him. Joseph got up and during the night took the child and his mother to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod died. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I have called my son out of Egypt. When Herod knew the Magi had fooled him, he grew very angry. He sent soldiers to kill all the children in Bethlehem and in all the surrounding territory who were two years old and younger, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. This fulfilled the words spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and much grieving, Rachel weeping for her children, and she did not want to be comforted because they were no more. Hmm. I actually want to approach this in like backwards of the way the biblical text does it because I'm just so interested in the Magi fooling Herod and then Herod's response. And then we can talk about the escape to Egypt in a minute. And what do you think of like, this is just such a brutal response from Herod. I don't even, I don't even know how to ask you a question about it, but what, what is your reaction to what Herod does here? I mean, my reaction to this whole section, and this is totally one of those things that, again, being outside the world of sort of New Testament readers generally, I don't know if everyone thinks this or no one thinks this or I don't know. But, I mean, he's he's Pharaoh. Yes. Like, this is just, it has, this is the story of Joseph turned in some kind of weird, like, you know, it's like the up. Um, what do they call it in Stranger Things? The upside down. Oh, this yeah. is like the uh-huh. upside down version of the story of Joseph. And so for me, yes, this is just a story of a cruel ruler who is trying to protect their own power. And in the case of Pharaoh, it was, you know, trying to reduce the population of Israel that was living there. And in the case of Herod, he's there's one particular, it's not about numbers. There's one particular baby that he Yeah construes as a threat to his power and he you know doesn't seem to feel any qualms about you know he he tried he tried to do it the more the less violent way he tried to get the the wise men to bring the baby back to him and they didn't and so he erupts in this sort of really like unquenched (laughs) like okay so whatever we have to do then yeah he doubles down on his plan. I really love that, Amy. And, you know, my head didn't go to Joseph. My head went to 
Moses, because mm-hmm. this is what's happening at the time of the birth of Moses, too, is that Pharaoh is killing all the babies and Moses is escapes through the Nile. And so, like, those yes. resonances are really interesting. You know, you, you, uh, yes, of course. I guess, I mean, part of it is his name is Joseph and he's, and Joseph is the one who goes to Egypt. Yeah. And like, that's the beginning of that story. Like, it's all one big story tied up, I guess, in my mind. But yes, you're right. By the time they get to Pharaoh and the babies, that's, that's further on down the line and more associated with Moses. But, you know, I've, I look sometimes at what folks are writing in the narrative lectionary Facebook group. Sure. And a couple of times recently, people have posted things about how some members of their community are, oh, like kind of over reading the Hebrew Bible or don't really know why we have to do this or, you know, all that stuff. And I mean, of course, I don't really know how to interact with that because that's, you know, that's all, that's what I got. So, (laughs) um, but I will say when I come to a section like this, I'm like, Oh, like this for me was like, it was like watching a star implode, like how these different storylines from the Hebrew Bible are all like converging upon themselves and twisting in new and different ways. And like, I mean, fine. Yes. Christians mostly know the story of Joseph and the story of Moses, but like the more you know them as their own stories in their own right that have their own resonance, like that's what gives this story so much power to me is that it's it's using all of that in in such a I mean I don't even know how to describe what I think it's doing exactly other than it's like it's turning in on itself and reshaping into I don't know I have like some weird welding imagery in my head (laughs) or like glass blowing but not glass because glass is too uh seems not like Dangerous and I know I don't know I don't know I don't know it's it's like some kind of I don't know weird things are happening in my head. What you're saying there is so important because Matthew's original audience would have had the experience that you're having. They are a Jewish audience, presumably, or at least largely a Jewish audience. They know those stories really well. When Matthew tells the story of Jesus this way, they're having this kind of mind blowing yeah. star collapsing. Oh my goodness, look how all these pieces fit together. Joseph is like Joseph. Right. Egypt's going to protect Joseph and his family just like Egypt protected Joseph and his family before. Herod is like Pharaoh killing the babies. But but he's not Egyptian. He's in the land of Judea. Like, so what do you do with that? Like Pharaoh has come to Jerusalem now. And Jesus is being born in the conditions that Moses was also born in. And so- Is Jesus a prophet like Moses? And now we're in Deuteronomy, right? And so all of this is playing together and really, really important in the way that Matthew is shaping his telling of the story of Jesus. And I think we're supposed to get all of that, um, but you can't get it if you've never read it. Right, you can't get it if you haven't read it and haven't haven't seen it as whole unto itself. Right. And then to see what happens, you know, what happens afterwards. If you look at that imploding star of all of these texts, just in this little section about the killing of the babies, Mm. does it give you any, like, where does it lead you when you think about it that way? What does it open up for you? I guess, I mean, it makes me think about sort of like 
earthly forces that refuse to respond, like who, who, who clearly recognize in some way that something bigger is happening because if they didn't recognize it, they wouldn't have had this response in the first place, mm. but they will not yield. And mm-hmm. so that that's the kind of thing that erupts into terrible violence. You know, now that I'm thinking more about the, the part of the story where Moses is about to be born and the midwives who, you know, Pharaoh says just, you know, you can, the, they can take care of it. We don't have to kill everyone, you know, under a certain age. The midwives can do it and the midwives won't. Right. <laughs> they won't do it. And I can imagine in that moment, like feeling mm. like maybe you've done the wrong thing because now you've brought more violence upon the world. But it's like the, the like death throes of the empire. I love that, Amy. And the, you, where you drew out for me was Pharaoh called the midwives. The midwives are in the business of bringing life into the world. Yeah. And so they can't carry out the order. Herod calls the soldiers. Soldiers know about exercising the power of death in the world. And they can carry out the order. And it's just interesting to think about that contrast and like what are the powers that can be engaged in the defense of the ruler. And one mm-hmm. of the messages I think in Matthew's gospel is that death is the power that rulers have. That is the power that trumps all other powers. Yeah. And, you know, we, we talk about this in the new Testament, I think probably all every year, but the power that God brings into the world is the power of life that can be overcome by death. And so this is setting up the stage for this conflict between the ruler who protects his own power by exercising death and the ones who are willing to carry out that order yeah, versus the one who brings life into the world and the ones who are willing to follow, to follow that one. Right. And the Magi who don't really do anything to stop it from happening, but also don't participate. Right. You know? They got kind of duped. I wonder if they got duped into this or if they, I, I, yeah, it's hard to know what to make of them whether they could have anticipated that this was what was about right. to happen and just didn't do anything. Right, right. Or if they would not have would not have anticipated it. I mean, as you said early, when they call Herod king, when they call the baby king of the Jews, speaking to Herod, who called himself king of the Jews, it doesn't seem like they mean anything by that. So right. it does seem like maybe they just don't, they don't know what pot they've stirred. Right. Which makes me think of all the well-meaning and naive people, often like myself, who don't realize what we're stepping into or what we've created and wander back away to our place without recognizing the danger that we have created. Do you do anything with this quote from Jeremiah? I don't honestly know what to do with it here. I mean, I associate it with Rachel, Rachel's buried in Ramah. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, Rachel, dies during the birth of her or in some relationship to the birth of her younger child, Benjamin, and is, is left along the way is buried They you know, they, they didn't carry her mm-hmm. somewhere. She's buried in Ramah, but I'm not, I, I don't know what, I don't know what to do with that here other than mother's mourn. I, I don't know. I don't know. What do you have in there, Bobby? No, that's an important connection because, you know, I connected it to Jeremiah and the sort of metaphorical Rachel who is weeping for Mm -hmm. the people as they go into exile in Babylon. But -hmm. connecting it to the actual woman, Rachel, who also 
had the experience of first of being childless and then dying in childbirth and just the so I some, somehow bringing mm. the actual woman and the metaphorical woman together and then saying this experience of these children dying how we've experienced this before we experienced it in the exile we experienced it in actual that is interesting to think about death death that happens sort of in the face of birth or in relationship mm-hmm. to birth mm-hmm. and if we're if we are to see you know that the birth of Jesus as this sort of magnificent bringing of a force of life into the world and then all these babies who die mm-hmm. because you know in in direct response to his birth not because of his birth exactly yeah it does it does seem a little bit like death and childbirth mm-hmm. so Jesus seems to be the one child who escapes and Mm -hmm. you just said it as not due to his birth, but because of his birth, which I think is, or something like that, which God, God does not seem to have intended this thing to happen, but God protects the one child while Herod destroys all the other children. This is, I mean, it's just so wrenching. And so on the one hand, you're like, thank goodness that Jesus and Mary and Joseph escaped. But on the other hand, you're left with this horrifying incident and the weeping and wailing that is connected to it. Yeah. I, can, how do you enter into that space? And, and they're the babies of his own people. Like these are yeah. the people that Herod's supposed to be yeah. leading and protecting. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is one of those things, this might be a weird thing to say, but like this is one of those things that makes the idea of like a messianic time so frightening, not just that everything's going to change the way that God intends it for it to change, but also people are going to lose their minds in an effort for it not to change and are going to bring every power that they have to, to fight against it. And it's going to erupt in these crazy shows of violence that actually have nothing to, nothing, no ultimate effect on the path that's that's been laid here because Jesus isn't even in right. Bethlehem. And Jesus is not there. He's left the building. And I think, I mean, I think that's a thing that's true in the world on a much smaller scale is that when, when people, change upsets people. And it's not mm-hmm. just that the change itself is hard. It's that people have all kinds of responses to it that are terrifying and real. Like it's not, these children are dead and they're not coming back. Their parents are not getting them back. This is not a metaphor. This is, I mean, if we're, if we are assuming that this story is narrating something historical, I can't really comment on that, but that that's real. And so there, there has to be space for grief in this space, like alongside whatever wonderful thing. Yeah. It's coming. Whether this is historical or not, I think is very difficult to assess. We don't have any evidence of this from anywhere outside of Matthew's gospel. But even if not historical, I still think it's real. Like you are naming a reality. This is the kind of thing that happens when people in power who have access to weapons of destruction are fearful of losing their power. Like death is where they go. And so this effort to bring life into the world is fraught with the deathliness of the empire or the deathliness of human fear. 
whether or not this story actually happened exactly yeah. this way. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. Okay, well, let's see how the story ends then, picking up in verse 19. After King Herod died, an angel from the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said, and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Those who are trying to kill the child are dead. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus ruled over Judea in place of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he went to the area of Galilee. He settled in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. When you think about the amalgamation of Hebrew scriptures that are behind the story, does this connect in any places for you? Yeah. I mean, first, we didn't mention this last time, but just just the phrase appeared in a dream to Joseph. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, Joseph yeah. the dreamer. Yeah, in Egypt. I mean, yeah, Joseph the dreamer in Egypt is is clearly getting called up for me. And then I was thinking of when Moses intervenes between, you know, a violent episode of a, an Israelite, I think, being beaten by an Egyptian and then kills the Egyptian and then realizes that he is known to have killed the Egyptian and goes to hide and then eventually gets the message that it's safe to go back. Right. Those who are seeking You're nodding. Your life so I'm like, that is yeah. how that story goes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that what this pulls on for you? I think so. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting sort of reversal because Moses escaped from Egypt to Midian and then was called back to Egypt Yeah. with that same similar phrasing of those who are seeking your life have died. Joseph and his family escaped to Egypt from Israel, get called back to Israel, but with a very similar. So the the roles have reversed between Herod now in Israel is playing the role of Pharaoh and Egypt is the protector it's so interesting to see this unfold in story this way because like I both want to like dig into it and think about it and write a paper about it and I don't because yeah. in some ways I feel like it's not trying I don't know if it's trying to make a particular point by reversing things in some way or you know I mean I guess maybe it is but I think it's also possible that it's just pulling on this like deep resonance of like the stories of our heroes and the stories of yeah. our people and the dangers they have encountered and how they maneuvered through them and yeah I agree with you on that I probably do want to <laughs> like I, I always want to make write a, a paper. little more of it but I don't know if I want to write No you, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong what I want to make of it is it was easy for us uh, to say that Egypt was corrupt, abusive, more interested in money than people willing to exercise death in the interest of power. And now it has come to our place and our people and our ruler. And what are we going to do about it? It just brings it really, it brings it really close to home and makes us mm-hmm. sort of examine our own context and think about our own alliances, allegiances. Yeah. 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 It's a lot easier when it's a clearly outside enemy. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think sometimes gets lost in this story is that, I mean, I don't really know what to make of it, but Joseph and Mary and Jesus are political refugees who seek asylum in Egypt because their lives are in danger there. I don't really know what to make of that other than I think that language is important. Yeah. And in our own time and place when oftentimes 
people Absolutely. of faith, especially Christians, are sort of opposed to political refugees right. coming to our place in interest of their own lives. And to say, I mean, right. this is part of our part of our Christian story is exactly that. If it were not for Egypt accepting political refugees, right, the story ends very differently. Right. What if Egypt had said, like, well, why are you coming and we don't want to get involved in this and you right. need to work it out with your own government and we're sure your king has his reasons? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. And I also want to note, just for whatever it's worth, that in the, in the Hebrew Bible, Egypt was not always a place of danger. Like the That's reason right. they were in Egypt in the first place was that it was a, that it was good. It was just That's this right. particular, it, it changed so fast, yeah. right? As soon as there was this change in leadership and the Pharaoh was afraid of what was happening, but it was, Egypt is not like the paradigm of evil all That's the time, true. broadly written. Right. It's just such a famous story. That's right. But yeah, it's that leader, that one leader. Which is why to me, it's so interesting that your head went to Joseph, which is exactly like, that's the protection side, right? That's Egypt the protection protected side. Joseph and his family. And my head went to Moses, which is, yeah, Egypt tried to kill Moses. And both of those are true in the Hebrew scripture. Yes. And both of them are resonating in this text. Yes. Which, which is important to hold on to. I tend to want to erase the Joseph side, <laughs> uh, but you're, you're right. It's important to hold on to. The last thing that I want to say about this is just that Mary and Joseph seem to be headed back to Bethlehem. So this is different than Luke's version where they actually live in Nazareth and they were just in Bethlehem for a time. They head back toward Bethlehem and then the angel warns them like that's still not a safe place. Herod's son Archelaus is dangerous. So you should go to Galilee. And so they, they go to Nazareth as a way of seeking safety rather than going home. And so the two stories end up in the same place. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He grows up in Nazareth. But they get there two kind of different ways. That's really beyond the scope of this particular episode of the Bible. Yeah. But it's interesting to note the way that that same dynamic gets narrated in these two, two Gospels. Amy, there's a lot that we have unearthed here. And I think I'll, I have the sense mm. that we could keep going for another I think we could uh, keep long going for time. a long time. When you're thinking about this text and where it resonates with the contemporary world and uh, the communities that we live in, what do you think is important to pull out? You know, I don't usually do this, but I think I'm going to go with an idea that I had before we started talking about it at all, yeah. which, which we haven't talked about too much, but has been on my mind lately, mostly because of where we are in that Hebrew Bible cycle in the Jewish community, which is all the dreams. Yeah. And, you know, you just now when you were talking, you said an angel tells him not to go to Nazareth, but it's a dream. dream. Yeah. I'd, and I just have been thinking a lot about, especially at this time of year when it is dark. And at least I feel um, very antsy and I don't want it to be dark and I want to turn all the lights on. And, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> like I, I don't want it to be dark. Trying to accept the sort of quieting of the season and my parents' eternal invitation to go to bed when it gets dark. Just go to bed. Mm. And try to trust that there is, you know, instead of like fear, what are you missing out on by letting your mind relax? Like, what are you missing out on by not letting your mind relax? I don't know. I could, I, I, I'm really fascinated lately with this idea that our 
trying to create dreamy spaces in the world where you stop thinking in like really practical ways where Mm. you're trying to figure out what to do and like you need you need signs and you need someone to tell you and you need information like sometimes you have to precisely not do that and just like find some way to be semi-conscious and receive information that you're not gonna fight because it doesn't make sense and I just feel really struck that in this text, there are at least three times, four times that it mentions, you know, being warned in a dream mm-hmm. or informed of something in a dream. And I, I don't know. I just want to say that's, I feel like that, I, I feel like that's a really like half-baked yeah. idea, but I want to, that's dreamy. Dreams are half-baked. So there you go. I love that, Amy. <laughs> I mean, I mentioned earlier that I'm a, rational Presbyterian who doesn't pay attention to the stars, like astrology. And I kind of, you can see I do it with dreams too, because I just eliminate the dreams and just say an angel spoke to Joseph. So it's interesting to me to think about what you're saying, that there are all kinds of different ways of accessing God or um, the deep realities of the world. And those of us who only are interested in the, in the, thinking side of it or the textual side of it or whatever I'm interested in miss out on lots of possibilities. I'm going to take that as a challenge. I'm going to dream and gaze (laughs) at the stars more. Dream and gaze at the stars and we'll see how that goes. I love it. What are you, what are you drawing out from this text today, Bobby? I feel like I've been kind of drawing my, (laughs) drawing my point out this whole time, Um, which is very different than where, where you ended no, I just think that this Christmas, this is an important corrective or not a corrective. I mean, it is a little bit. It is a little bit of a corrective. It is a little. It is important to read this along with the other Christmas stories. I don't want yeah. this to replace the other Christmas stories. Yeah. But it pulls out the revolutionary impulse, which is also there in Luke's gospel, especially in Mary's Magnificat in chapter one, which we talk about. But this story draws it out in a, such a more tangible and fearful and horrifying way yeah. that when the world gets upended, the power of death is going to be wielded in the world by people who are afraid of losing their power. That's what people do. And that's what happens in this text. That's what happens in our world. Being in favor of more life for all is great until it starts to threaten people's power. And right. then you never know what's about to happen. And sometimes it can be, be very horrifying. This text to me is a call to people of faith to think about where we fit in that scheme and whose side are we on. And I've, I mean, for whatever reason, this time I'm reading it, I'm resonating with the chief priests and the scribes, the legal mm-hmm. experts. Maybe because that's kind of me, like I'm an ordained Presbyterian and I'm a PhD in Bible. Like those two identities are kind of like who I am. Yeah. And the King Herod is calling on me to say like, here's what I'm up to. Are you going to help me? Are you not going to help me? And there's a choice to be made there about, am I going to, you know, lend my faith to the powers of Herod? Or am I going to protect my faith in defense of the power of life? Mm-hmm. I don't know what these chief priests and scribes were doing, actually. I don't know whether they were like, oh, yeah, we want to support Herod, or whether they just didn't underst- 
understand right. what the religious beliefs they were talking about could do in the wrong hands. Right, if they had some like political naivete. But I think either one of those things mm-hmm. is important, whether it's yeah. nefarious or naive, yeah. Yeah. to recognize what can be done by fearful people of power when they have religious knowledge and to be protective about that and to make sure that what we do in the name of the faith is always protecting life and not uh, in the service of the powers of death. Christmas, I mean, people don't want to talk about that at Christmas. I don't want to talk about that at Christmas. Mm -hmm. But it's part of the story and the, the difficult side of, like you were saying, the difficult side of the entry of the messianic era into the world, if that's what we've got narrated here in Matthew. Like it's it's messy and painful, yeah. and we've and we've got some choices to make. I'm really glad you you pulled this text out for us to read, Bobby, because I think I think you're right. It is it's another side to the story. It's hope hopefully Mary and Joseph are blissfully unaware of it wherever they are at this point in the story. But yeah. you know things are moving in the in the political realm here, and it's scary. This conflict between the sort of inbreaking kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Herod and his successors. And the question of where do people of faith fall in these between these kingdoms is going to continue to occupy us all the way through the Gospel of Matthew. Next time, we'll be back in the narrative lectionary in Matthew chapter 3, 1 to 17, which is the story of Jesus's baptism, which we've talked about before, but Matthew's version of it has a little bit of a, of a different twist. All right. I look forward to it. All right, Amy. Thanks for this conversation, and especially on your birthday. Thank you. Good to see you on my birthday, Bobby. (laughs) Happy birthday. I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Join us next time when we'll read the story of Jesus' baptism as told in Matthew 3, 1-17. Until then, keep on digging.